Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week. Actually, join us every week now to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today's episode, we also have our brand new co-host, Dr. Charles Van Rees on. He is our, our conservation correspondent, and you will hear him on a number of our conservation-themed episodes going forward. You will know him as well from our data episode, and uh, I uh, he needs no further introduction. So you will hear him on this episode as well, specifically talking about our conservation topics. Today, Charles and I are interviewing Nathaniel Marshall, who runs Give Bats a Break, and we're talking to him about bats. So as you may know, Barley and Rachel and then Niffler and I spent the summer searching wind farms for dead bats. Um, and this episode, we're talking about why. How bad are wind farms for bats? What can we do about it? Why do we even care about bats? How can you get involved in bat conservation in your neighborhood? All of those questions Charles and Nate and I dig into. It's a really fun conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. Um, so before we get to it, Nate, um, who you will hear a lot more about as we get started, he's a plumber by trade and a bat lover by choice. So what began as a way to share bat pictures on Twitter became a bat apologetics initiative after a chance encounter with the Pope. It's a great story. He'll tell uh, about it. Tell us all about it in a second. Um, and he's in contact with a bunch of the major, major players in bat research today. So his childhood dream of becoming a bat scientist hasn't technically come true yet. Nate's um, able to talk to and work alongside them and is learning about amplif- learning from them and amplifying their work. And it's a really great conversation. He is a real champion for bats and we're thrilled to have him on. Before we get started, we are going to talk a little bit about our weekly suggestion, which comes from Nathan. And it, it's a really good one. So it comes from uh, Dr. Merlin Tuttle, who is a big, big bat researcher that uh, both Nate and I follow quite closely online and um, in books. And one of the things that Dr. Merlin Tuttle suggests um, that has become a North Star for Nate and I think is going to be useful for all of us, myself included, is to win friends, not battles. So, you know, facts are really important and they absolutely shouldn't be ignored. But if you communicate them in a combative way, trying to shut people down or argue with them or shout them down, um, those facts are likely not going to be absorbed anyway. So start with building a relationship, start with building a friendship, and then you can change minds later and continue continue learning from each other. So approaching these relationships with humility and friendliness and curiosity, instead of just trying to shout someone else down, is a great way to win friends, not battles. And in the long run, hopefully that'll help us win the war, whether you're talking about conserving bats or any other cause that matters to you. So now let's get to the episode with Nathaniel Marshall and our conservation correspondent, Charles Van Rees. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Nate. It's great to have you here. Thanks. I'm uh, I'm stoked to be here. Yeah. So why don't you start out? Um, you know, before we were recording, you were telling me, but Charles missed it, and obviously all of our listeners missed it. A little bit of how you actually got into this this bat world that you're currently involved in. Can you kind of catch us up on on where this came from for you, and how we got so involved in bats, or how you got so involved in bats? Yeah. So I um, I loved bats as a kid. And so for, for me, they've always been a, an object of fascination and affection rather than being something that I was afraid of. Uh, the, the bad stories didn't really affect me. I just thought they were really stinking cool. And uh, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be a bat scientist when I got older. Uh, 
my teachers would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was bat scientist, bat scientist. And in fact, there's a, my mom has like a, a like a, a home yearbook where she mm-hmm. was like tracking me from year to year. And like every year, I think with the exception of one, I think I kind of gave into the status quo and said I wanted to be an astronaut, but, uh, but every other year it was bat scientist. And so um, fast forward to high school and I'm like not a great student and science sort of wasn't fully on the map for me. Um, I, I enjoyed science, but I didn't have any aspirations to make uh, science a career. And I graduated, joined the workforce, uh, ended up as a plumber a number of years later, and that's been my career for the last seven years is in the home services industry. Um, but uh, but a bit, about a year and a half ago, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started a Twitter account. I had a buddy who... Um, is not a also not a scientist but just knows a lot about bees and like would do like ama sessions ask me anything about bees and i just thought that was so cool that like he was not like not a professional but just loved him so much that he just studied them and knew a lot about them and i was like you know what i loved bats when i was a kid why i that's i'm doing that i'm gonna i'm gonna become like a subject matter expert on bats and so i made a twitter account to like kind of share what i was researching and learning about and pictures and cool factoids and stuff like that and um there was a tweet that was sent out by the pope's account um uh, th- that pope the pointy hat the vatican um <laughs> and probably not him himself i can't imagine that pope francis is sitting on twitter can't verify that he's not but i just imagine that he's got a social media manager and uh, that individual sent out a, a quote from a homily that he had, had preached at some point. And it was something to the effect of uh, when humans are in a state of sin, they go around committing their evils uh, in the night, like a human bat, something, something, something. Oh. And I was like, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Like, I, I don't disagree necessarily. It seems pretty obvious to me that like, when we do naughty things, we don't want others to know about it. Right. Like, okay, cool. Got it. <laughs> But like maybe, maybe you didn't know that there's like a global pandemic happening, and the news media and the public are sort of blaming bats for it. So let's not let's not add to that narrative. And so I, I offered a counter theological reflection in which bats figured positively as examples of what we should be, and which would actually make us better humans if we were more like bats. Um, and and it went viral. So the the response um, it was a four tweet thread, and it you know was the, each individual tweet was being retweeted, quote tweeted, liked. And I was getting private messages and I went from having less than 200 followers on my Twitter account to over 5,000 in two days. (laughs) And, and all of a sudden, like Merlin, Dr. Merlin Tuttle, which if you know anything about bats, you probably know who Dr. Merlin Tuttle is follows me. Like his account was following me in those two days. I'm like, (laughs) 
<laughs> he was my hero as a kid, you know. Like I, I I've, sir, I saw you in zoo books. Like I, I wrote yeah. a letter to you, and you wrote me back. Like you, like you have always been a, like a, 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 like you loomed large in my imagination. And all of a sudden, his his account follows mine. And um, so yeah, all of these like notable researchers that are on Twitter, right? There's plenty that aren't on social media at all. Um, but for those that were, I, I, a lot of them follow me now. And so I made all these connections with all of these wonderful researchers from, from the entire globe, uh, that, uh, are, I'm, I'm now friend, like at least mutuals with on Twitter, but like have actually developed relationships with a good number of them as well. So it, mm-hmm. it, this is not the standard way of fulfilling your childhood dream, but it's sort of how, how mine ended up going. And uh, I'm really thankful for it. So one thing, one thing I've come across a lot as someone working in conservation and specifically always getting the reply guy uh, always coming at me like, oh, what's wrong with this extinction? Or how does this thing help us at all? People have this very instrumental view of species in general. And so I think it would be it would be really nice, especially for all the reply guys in the audience or people who are looking to use this podcast, perhaps, to talk to some reply guys uh, about bats. What are what are the things that, that we should like about bats that we perhaps don't know? What, what makes them useful? What's adorable or lovely or just brightens the universe about them. Uh, I'd love to hear some of your favorite facts that you've come across in this massive, you know, incredibly speciose order of mammals. Yeah. Well, they, they are, uh, first of all, you you can't get away from them. Like you you think they're not around. You think you don't have bats close to you and you're wrong. (laughs) They they are pretty much everywhere that you can go uh, on the planet. They are, only slightly less distributed than us. Um, and uh, unless you're in Antarctica, you, you've got bats around you. And so they're everywhere. They have filled just this astonishingly diverse number of ecological niches. Um, they eat insects, but then they also eat fruit, but then they also eat fish and crustaceans, but then they also eat blood. Like they're, they're, (laughs) you just, the variation in this order of animal is truly astonishing. So you were mentioning this, this great variety and all these, these different things that bats as a group do. Are we talking about different kinds of bats? And if so, there must be an incredible number of different kinds doing all these different things. That's a heck of a story. Those kinds. And and on what sort of evolutionary scales are we talking with this level of variation? Yeah, so bats are incredibly diverse. They are my last... Literally, like less than seven days ago, I was looking at the official list, which is batnames.org, by the way. Uh, it's, ma- it's maintained <laughs> by uh, uh, Nancy Simmons and Andrea Serenello, who are um, two taxonomists, and it's through the American Museum of Natural History. It was at, the, the total count was at uh, 1,434 species. And in less than a week's time, uh, I just checked again, and we are now at 1,439 species. So this is like a there's a really high number. Um, one in five mammals in the world is a bat. Uh, so they are, like I said a minute ago, they're everywhere. The, mm-hmm. the, saying that this bat and 
<laughs> they're so different from each other that like the only thing that they have in common is that they're a flying mammal. You know what I mean? It's like, which isn't important. It's not unimportant. Like, that's that's like an important uniting factor there because there aren't that many uh, mammals that do that. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're wildly different from each other um, in, in, in a lot, in really important ways. Um, Not only in the different niches that they fill, but even at, yeah, at the level of evolution, just some of the adaptations that they have to, to fit them for the different things, the different roles that they fill. Um, Yeah. In those ways, they couldn't be more different from each other, which is kind of wild to think about. So so would it be safe to say then that when we're talking about bats and we're making these insane generalizations, that we're talking about a massive group of animals that is a major chunk of just the mammals on Earth from the sounds of it? Yeah, and it, it... generalizations are helpful right like when for conversations um generalizations i've discovered often don't work well for bats because Mm -hmm. something that you can say about one species uh is probably not true for the vast majority of the other species so it's like we can't say uh we can't paint too broad of statements when it comes to this animal because it's like uh trying to think of an example like, are they all nocturnal? No, they're not all nocturnal. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. Great example. So we always hear bats are nocturnal. Well, a lot of bats are nocturnal, but there also are a lot of bats that aren't. Um, particularly mm-hmm. like the fruit-eating bats, like old-world fruit-eating bats in the paleotropics, flying foxes are typically diurnal. They're, they're, they're a day-dweller. Um, but even then, not all flying foxes. There are, there are certain of them that have sort of a... Uh, a nocturnal rhythm but um or another example that i i just thought of a second ago was um uh all bats echolocate well not all bats actually echolocate Mm. uh most of them do and most of them had it at one point had echolocation and then have actually lost or or do no longer use the their echolocating abilities but uh but they don't. But they don't all actually have it uh, at various points in history. Evolu- mm-hmm. Again, it's just like th- these are helpful, and these are things that we sort of like grip onto in like the public narrative talking about bats. But they're not all necessarily true all the time. So, I'm getting the impression that we we have this this great diversity of bats. This is not just bats. It's not one thing, right? There there isn't just this Halloween silhouette, and that's this one type of animal all over the world. We have a lot of different things going on. So. What, what makes me wonder immediately then as a naturalist is, okay, have all these different kinds of bats. It sounds like they're doing vastly different things in the environment. One major way which, in which they're probably interacting with their environment is eating things. What do different bats eat? And it, does that have any relevance to us? Yeah, so um, the, the ones, the, the bats that we typically hear about, like in, in the list of ecosystem services that bats provide, something that people cling to pretty easily is that they eat mosquitoes, which is a hundred percent true. And we should be thankful for that because they Mm -hmm. do, there's not really much evidence that they're suppressing populations of mosquitoes, but they do eat a lot of them um, along with other animals like dragonflies and and a number of others that, that are also uh, involved that also, Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
eat mosquitoes or mosquito-sized insects, but um, that is not the only thing they eat. Uh, they they can also eat. Um, there are uh, in there was a study that was done a number of years back uh, in Texas to look at um, what is it the the cornier moth. There's a particular moth that's mm-hmm. uh, that's a pest species for farmers in Texas, yeah, and yeah. Uh, these mexican free tail bats that that live there first of all there's a huge number of them second of all they fly really far and have a, just a really wide distribution when they're mm-hmm. eating at night mm-hmm. and thirdly this study found that they were consuming um literal tons of them per night uh, across the entire colony which saved farmers anywhere from it was estimated between like Three billion and fifty billion dollars per year in okay. pesticides and pest control. Um, so they have a huge agricultural benefit, at least in Texas. I have yeah. to imagine that is probably true elsewhere in mm-hmm. in the country. But uh, but yeah, so you've got insectivores that are doing something like that. Then you've got fruit eaters that are. Uh, that function in some places as pollinators. They're, they're, uh, sorry, fruit eaters would be seed, seed dispersers. Um, nectar eating bats that act as pollinators. They have co-evolved a lot of the time with these flowers where their snoots just, just (laughs) fitting perfectly into these flowers. And they're just, they're so like, like a glove and a hand. They, they fit perfectly in there. Their tongue goes out to get the nectar. They come out and it looks like they just stuck their face in a bag of Cheetos. You know what I mean? <laughs> the dust is just all over their face and they go to the next flower and they do it over and over and over again. And so they pollinate all these wonderful flowers. Um, and then you've got the fruit eaters that they, they eat the fruit, they metabolize them really quickly. And so within 30 to 40 minutes as they're, as they're, some of them are long distance flyers, right? And so the only way that this fruit or these trees are going to make it any distance is by these bats who fly a long way, uh, dozens and dozens of kilometers to, and they metabolize them quick enough that as they're flying, they're pooping along the way and, and dispersing that seed. Um, and then you've got the blood eaters. <laughs> and the blood eaters are the vampire bats, uh, which actually aren't uh, at all. Um, mm-hmm. They're really stinking cool. And they are, out of the 1,430, now nine species in existence, they comprise three. Three uh, of those bats, uh, species of bats, exclusively consume blood and they're all in central and south america and um they they they're actually probably some of the most fascinating bats in existence um not only because they the fact that they only eat blood is actually kind of the least interesting thing about them uh there are social structures (laughs) i'm just like that's fascinating the least fascinating thing like good grief Yeah, their their social structures and hierarchy, the 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 altruism that they uh, um, that they have with one another, they are really really fascinating, and uh, they're actually kind of one of the one 
one of only very few examples uh, where they've actually benefited from human presence <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because they feed primarily on livestock um, and because livestock populations have increased. That's actually been a benefit to to these uh, bat populations in uh, amongst the vampires. So, so yeah, yeah. and then. Um, so then you've got fish eaters. There's there's fishing bats, uh, and these fishing bats have adapted uh, have these wonderful adaptations for finding and catching them. And um, between like echolocation and their giant feet, um, you know, other other bats are kind of known for having kind of tiny feet. They really don't serve much of a function as long as they just kind of can lock in place to hang. That's really all they need them for. Not the fishing bat. The fishing <laughs> bat has to have like these giant back feet that they like trawl over the water as they swim to hook a uh, to hook a fish. They you know fling it up into their pouch. The bulldog bat has these big like really kind of derpy looking uh, cheek <laughs> pouches that they'll flip a fish into. And um, like a pelican, <laughs> like it, it, or like a chipmunk. Like is that what we were kind of thinking? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. pelican chipmunk. A pelican chipmunk, yeah, of course. Pelican chipmunk, bats. Why do they, it's I guess, so okay, I guess yeah. bulldogs have big faces too. So, okay, do their do their claws then face kind of forward? Like, are they going through? And like, this is not a great question for our auditory medium, but because I, I guess I imagined that bats their claws would face backwards, kind of towards towards the rear. But mm-hmm. if they're kind of going to hook, it must face forwards. Yeah. So bats, uh, bats legs and feet actually are rotated 180 degrees from ours in there. Oh, yeah. So, so when, when you see them on the ground, um, like vampire bats are actually a great example of this. Yeah. Uh, it, it, cause they, they are, they are one of only two bats that have like naturally developed or evolved, um, the ability to run. And, um, and they, they can go at like somewhere between two and three miles per hour, which is pretty quick for a ground bat, for a grounded <laughs> yeah. bat. Yeah. Right. Um, and so when, when you look at them just standing there, they almost look kind of like a cricket. Uh, like if you just, if you just look at, at the yeah. way that their limbs, cause their knees kind of go, go the wrong way. Body. Yeah. Yeah. So they, oh so yeah, their, their legs and feet are rotated from ours and that, that helps them, um, in roosting in particular, uh, yeah. especially if they're like a cave dwelling or like a tree roosting bat, okay. um, you have to, you, you want to keep close to the wall and you can't do that when your feet are like ours. So they've over time they've rotated. And, and so, yeah. So, and to your point, yeah, when they're, when they're fishing, they go over the water, they are backwards. So they just have to be kind of like lower them into the water, snag the fish, and then they can sort of flop it up this way. Or another great example um, is these these migrating species, the Lazarian bats, the Eastern Reds and Hoary bats. Um, there's some really cool uh, video. Jesse Barber from oh gosh, where's where's Jesse at? I can't remember, but he's got some really really cool footage of uh, Eastern Red bats. They, <laughs> this is really cool. You've got to look this video up. So they they will. As they're catching moths, they will fly through the air. They kind of uh, they, they make their approach, and then they 
somersault. They like flip in the air and they flip their little tail up and over, which are being controlled by their backwards legs. They okay. flip them up and over to catch the moth. And then like we'll do entire backflips with the moth wow. caught in their <laughs> tail before flopping it up into their mouth. So all these really cool uses of their backward feet and legs that are not... You just wouldn't think about it, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but they have found that, uh, it's pretty helpful for the, for these different hunting strategies that they have. Jeez. That's a universal adaptation among the bats. That's, they all, all got rotated limbs. Wow. Yeah. That's so, uh, wow. Yeah. I, all of them. I've got to imagine that like, it, like just kind of thinking back evolutionarily, like that middle point, like I wonder if it started with like hyper flexible hips or something like that. Cause you'd imagine at some point this means evolutionary, they had like sideways legs, like, like yeah. how, would you, how would you get from like the, the direction that most other mammals knees go mm-hmm. to a 180? Like you'd imagine there's an intermediate in there that must've been pretty weird. No flipping clue. Yeah, and they don't have to be intermediates either. I mean, just from just from an evolutionary oh, okay. perspective, they don't they don't necessarily have to be. Sometimes you can get entire groups of genes that just whoop, and like literally the mutation is not a gradual process, but yeah. just a boom, and then you know you can just get developmental changes because sometimes the development of certain of certain because um, it's all a process, right? It's not, it's not like a like a moving a slider back and forth in a video game or something. It would be like maybe just a single gene assemblage changed the way that the entire leg oriented during development. And that's all it took. Wow. Yeah. Because the the oldest, the oldest complete fossil that we have, um, which was actually described by, I I mentioned Nancy Simmons earlier in batnames.org. She was on the team that described this fossil that was found in Wyoming. Um, It's called Onychonycterus finii. And it is 55 million years old, um, and it is the oldest complete fossil that we have. And it already had the vast majority of the adaptations of modern bats. So it's like its legs were already in the same spot. There were some proportions, like some ratios that were were off a little bit, and um, that each digit still had like a, a, a visible claw on the end, which oh, is something cool. that bats don't typically have now, except for a couple yeah. species. And even then it's only like maybe the first. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the, we, we don't have enough of the fossil record to be able to, to track a lot of it. Hey everyone, just dropping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. Um, So we still have all those same levels that we've talked about in the past. We've got the $3 a month doggy detector where you ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but you also get to join our monthly training video calls, which are great if you're considering getting into the field of conservation dog training or are already in it and want to take you and your dog to the next level. we will record the calls and then we publish the video for patrons to view and ask questions about. So everyone in all time zone gets gets to participate fully. At the $10 level, you get all of that plus the ability to ask questions, give feedback and submit videos of you and your dog training for those calls. Um, and we also, we don't care about your target owner. So if you're working on competitive scent work or explosives or narcotics or anything like that, come on and join. It's a ton of fun. Finally, canine conservationists at the highest level um, for $25 a month get a private 30-minute call with me each month, um, which is cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com. 
Um, so I also have a couple new updates. As of October this year, we're also going to be doing a monthly uh, learning club call. So aside from those video calls where every all of the patrons get to uh, go through dog training specific videos in these learning club calls, we will all watch the same webinar, read the science, same scientific paper, or otherwise kind of participate in the same new learning opportunity and then get together once a month on video chat to talk about it. So that's going to be a really great way to expand your knowledge, not just in the scent training world and the dog handling world, but also learning more about ecology, conservation, odor dynamics, all those great things. It's real nerdy. It's awesome. So I also added some exciting new merch. So for our patrons, now once every quarter, you will get an exclusive um, bit of canine conservationist swag if you join at the highest level. So there's a mini print of Niffler that's just kind of a cute little postcard of Niffler. Um, you get a canine conservationist mug after three months. And then there are a couple different stickers. And all of that just is kind of included in the cost of your Patreon. And again, all of that helps support this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without our members over on Patreon. So I do hope you go ahead and join us over on Patreon. Again, for as little as three bucks a month, you get all sorts of fun stuff at those higher levels. You do get more one-on-one attention and you get swag. But even if you've got three bucks a month, uh, we really appreciate it and would be thrilled to have you around. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. So um, why don't we pivot now to talking a little bit about wind farms, um, which is, you know, the reason I wanted to do this episode was because I get a lot of questions of people being like, why are you and your dogs out on wind farms? Why are you finding bats? Why do they matter? So we've covered kind of like why bats matter, some of the niches, why they're interesting. But then, so that's why we want to study them. But then what's going on with bats and wind farms? Kind of how bad is it? What are some of the mitigation options we've looked at? Um, You know, let's talk about wind farms now and bats. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, it's, which is unfortunate to say because wind uh-huh. energy is something that is super promising, right? Like uh-huh. it's it's a good thing uh, overall, but unless you're a bat, <laughs> unless yeah. you're these like, especially these number of, of migratory species that live here. Uh-huh. Um, well, really not just here. Uh, we're in North America, but this is a problem elsewhere in the world. Uh-huh. Um where wind farms are, um, I don't think the word decimating is too extreme. They're, they're really decimating these populations of particular species of bats uh, in here in North America. It's to the tune of hundreds of thousands of them a year that, mm-hmm. that are killed uh, because of these wind farms. So it's, it's not, it's not great. It's, it's not great news for bats, which yeah. is, it's a, there's a there's a balance which we're trying to find. It, that's the there's so much research going into it right now, trying to figure out like how how exactly can we mitigate this these deaths? Um, yeah, it's going to happen, right? It, it, there, I don't think that it's ever going to be a hundred percent mitigation. There, there's always going to be some amount of death. Um, we we have to coexist with with everything and with everyone. Um, humans kill other humans too. Uh, and so it's like, it's, it's just this reality that it's going to happen, you know, but can we prevent it, uh, from happening a little better than we are currently? And the answer is yes. Um, and we're trying to figure out exactly how. So, um, one thing that's been experimented with is acoustic deterrence, which, uh, are ex- exactly what it sounds like. It's it, they, they put them on the turbines, um, to basically 
put out a, a warning signal of some kind to the to the bats to try and get them to go around um, th- th- with varied success. I mean, some sometimes it's working and sometimes it's not. And there's the question of, you know, is is the technology if it's not working that well, do we put more money into further developing it? If it's yeah. Is the effort worth what we're getting from it? Um, yeah. And I don't think that there's a great answer for that question yet. Um, another strategy uh, is curtailment, which is basically turning, keeping the wind turbines off uh, up until a certain time or, or turning them off at certain times of day or during certain seasons in order to... Um, to, to lessen the likelihood that a bat is going to be hit out of the air by a wind turbine. So, so yeah, there, there are some strategies in place that, that were being experimented with, but there's not uh, there's not a clear winner yet. There's not a clear answer to this particular problem. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, and we, we were talking um, on the episode that you and I did together. So if people are listening to both episodes, you'll get a little bit of repeat info, but you know, there's some interesting stuff looking at, and, and at least one study, they found that the turbines that were closer to woodland areas had much more bat fatality because we've got these tree roosting bats, but then some other studies haven't replicated those findings. Um, I don't know, at least one of the smart curtailment methods that I was looking into, they found an 84.5% decrease in bat fatality um, with only a 23 percent reduction in revenue for the wind farm wow. so there's stuff like that that's really promising i know the largest wind farm in missouri just announced that it was going to go that route with turning the turbines off um at night during peak migration um and, and like the the animal trainer within me found some of the stuff about the acoustic de- deterrence really interesting um a lot of the studies i were i was finding just didn't seem like they were looking at it for long enough to be convincing you know they uh, like there was one and it, it was funny because I was reading the paper and they were like, so, you know, and we didn't see a decrease in deterrence over the course of the study period. So we feel confident the bats are go- aren't going to habituate. And then it was only a 10 day study. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like Wait 10 minute. days is nothing. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? Um, you know, it's promising. It's, it's something to continue exploring, but, and I know, um, like Ken Ramirez is a big, he's a, he's, a, he's huge in the animal training world and he's worked on everything from all sorts of really cool dog projects to working with um, training wild, wild animals and wildlife. And one of the projects he's worked on that we've covered before in the podcast was actually helping shift the migration route of elephants by strategically placing watering holes. So the elephants never knew they were being trained, but we were actually able to alter their migration routes to keep them from entering high risk areas for poaching. And, you know, the animal trainer within me, like, starts thinking, like, wow, yeah, like, what if we could strategically set up these areas with good water that's going to attract insects and good roosting? And, like, if we strategically set that up and maybe we can actually get these animals to shift their migration routes, even just by a couple kilometers in one direction or the other may actually help a lot. And I don't think anyone's looked into that yet, but that's because that seems like the animals wouldn't habituate to that the same way they may habituate to an aversive noise, like the thing with aversive training in general, and now I'm going on like an animal training rant, but like the thing with aversive (laughs) training in general is unless you're escalating it or the initial punishment is so severe that the animal will never try it again, you're likely to go to have to keep escalating it. And like an acoustic deterrent, most, most cases, the animal is going to eventually habituate to it. 
Right. Um, well, I think it's... That, uh, sorry, one last thing on that deterrent. I believe, let me pull it up. They, I think that deterrent was only useful like 12 to 15 meters out from the turbine. And these turbine blades are way longer than that. So, you know, again, yeah, you're seeing a reduction, close. but it's not, mm-hmm. it's just not good enough. It's just not there yet. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting because the, the que- the question is like why <laughs> why are why are these bat species even approaching the turbines to begin with like mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of to your point a second ago talking about behavior like it I, which is a novel concept to me i i had not even thought of that which i think i mean it seems brilliant just like at <laughs> at first blush it seems like yeah if if we could do that to just to get them off and around uh, that would be that would be incredible. Um, they they think that uh, the reason that they're approaching the turbines at all is because the like you know hoary bats in particular they have they're these are tree roosting species right so mm-hmm. some of the some of the selective adaptations that are advantageous when it comes to finding a roosting spot thin tall tree um, here's this thing that looks like a th- tree. Oh, it's not a tree. It's a, it is my death. Um, yeah. That, that uh, it's not great. It's great when it's a tree. It's not great when it's a, a wind turbine. So, um, and so, yeah, they're getting they're getting knocked out of the air from these turbines, or there's barotrauma, which mm-hmm. is fun. Um, you know, the, the 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 blade is rotating through the air, creates this low pocket. Uh, the low pressure pocket that a bat flies through. So it misses, maybe it misses the, the turbine blade itself, but it goes through from all of a sudden from high pressure to low pressure and the air in its lungs expands really quickly to make up for that pressure differential. And it literally pops their lungs. And so they fall out of the air dead. And that's also not a great way to die. So it's like there's, (laughs) there's two, there's two, two main ways that they're, that they're, meeting an untimely demise when it comes mm-hmm. to these uh, uh, wind turbines and um, the the acoustic deterrence yeah the, I don't uh, this is true of a lot of bat research I just don't I don't think that there's been enough time yet for us yeah. to be able to say conclusively many of the things that we would like to say conclusively about bats um, yeah. and about their behaviors and about mitigation strategies and everything else that we're talking about. We just, that hasn't been done long enough for us to be able to say like, yes, this, this is a proven track record of working. Um, it's a lot of extrapolation. It's a lot of guessing and hoping on good evidence, but but maybe just not enough evidence. Um, and so, yeah, so the research continues because it has to, um, if it comes to back to the earlier question about like, is, is wind energy, um, is it viable? Is it, is it good? Um, of itself? Yes. For bats? No. So if we had to choose between wind energy and bats like shut the wind farms down. We're not using them anymore. We're going to, we're going to think about bat species or the opposite. Um, it's going to be the opposite, right? Like the, the net positive of wind energy is such that like it, that would get chosen if we had to make a choice. Now, thankfully nobody is, is saying that we have to, we, we, we can have both. We just got to figure out how to make that work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly what I've had friends kind of ask me, especially 
like I had a couple instances this summer of finding live bats or fresh, like really fresh bats that were, you know, it's, it's emotionally upsetting as a handler. And I had a couple of friends be like, well, so how are you feeling about wind farms in general? And I'm like, well, yeah, it's still like, if we're going to talk on a purely utilitarian, this or that level, like I'm still for wind farms. It's just a matter of figuring out what mitigation methods we can do and how, how to treat this more intelligently. Um, yeah. The other thing I would imagine is that climate change probably isn't great for most bats either. So, you know, <laughs> if we shut down all the wind farms and just go all in on coal or something, that's probably not going right. to be great for bats either, even if it's not as, uh, not as stark. You know, it is part of mm -hmm. the reason that I've done it is because it is something that's relatively straightforward to study. You know, you know where you need to go and you just look around on the ground until you find a dead bat versus climate change. It would be, it would be harder to kind of see those direct lines. Yeah. And find you know, especially for this, this is an important area of research, but it's not, it's hard. It's hard for, for a lot of bat researchers to go to want to research it because you, you, you love most researchers love their study species, right? So it's like, it's really hard for a bat person to walk up and look at dead bats over and over and over again, day after day after day. So it's like, it's emotionally taxing. And uh -huh. uh, there, there are people who, who I've spoken with who've basically said that, that like, man, I, it was, it was just so brutal being uh -huh. out there and, and seeing them dead on the ground. It's like, carnage everywhere and uh and so yeah somebody's got to study it but it has you know you kind of have to have some uh some emotional resilience among other things in order yeah. to be able to study it long term so well, and i would imagine you know as we were talking about like human searchers where human searchers are more most effective it's finding fresh whole bats which is emotionally more challenging at least for me if i just yeah. found like a, a a bit of wing um, it wasn't, it didn't hit emotionally quite the same way. Um, sure, yeah. And, you know, one of the, the benefits that I had, and this was another thing that I would really focus on if I was having a hard day or like was finding a lot of fatalities is just being really proud of my dog and like focusing on the dog and that like helped kind of protect myself mentally. And if I was out searching without the dog and found like a really fresh, beautiful Eastern red bat or something like that, it just, it, at least when I had the dog with me, I could be proud of the dog and interact yeah. with that emotionally. And have your emotional support annual annual for the for the research. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Charles. Well, that that brings me to another kind of question that I've been sort of pondering again from the conservation perspective here. So, going to conservation science conferences, whenever bats come up, I am continually bombarded with the wind energy question. And I think part of the issue might be that as scientists, a lot of us have no money to do our work. And whenever there is a lot of funding to do research on something, it gets done. And depressing as, as that type of research is, a lot of my colleagues that do, you know, bat-related research are getting their money as mitigation, right, from some big company that has a bunch of bucks. And I mean, I'm really glad that we have sustainable energy and companies that are mm -hmm. investing in it. But I imagine that this is not the only threat to the world's bats. If, if they are indeed so widely spread and so variable and so different, some of them migratory, some of them not, eating all these different things, living all these different lifestyles that you were describing with their crazy backwards legs, what <laughs> other threats are then impacting them, you know, elsewhere in the world or other types of bats maybe that aren't, you know, flying up to, to gigantic wind turbines? What, what else are, are they kind of dealing with out there? So... 
Here in the United States, um, a, a big threat that was introduced in New York State in 2006 is white nose syndrome. Um, white nose syndrome is is wiping out entire colonies of of bats. It it has it's now I think in 38 states and seven Canadian provinces. So it started in New York State oh and has just sort of gone out this way across the country. Um, and it is, uh, it's not good. So white nose syndrome is, um, a, it's a fungal, it's a fungus, uh, okay. P destructins is a pseudo, oh gosh, it's, it's entire name. It's like pseudo, pseudo gymnasticus something. It's just easier to say P destructins or PD for short. Yeah. We'll go with PD. Um, so PD is the, is the fungal spore that, uh, is, it loves the cold. And mm, as it okay. turns out, bats hibernate in the cold. So, um, what happens is on any part of exposed skin, whether that's on the wing membrane or on its nose or on its ears, the spore lands and starts developing. Um, and it becomes an irritant to the bat. Uh-huh. And it w- awakens the bat out of torpor or out of hibernation. And that is very energetically taxing to the bat. And so in winter where it's normally, the reason it's hibernating to begin with is because it's typically got a very low uh, amount of food that it can find. And mm-hmm. so it gets really nice and chonky and fat for hibernation and it lowers its body temperature, lowers its heart rate, lowers all of its natural processes in order to consume as little of that fat across, you know, the months that it's hibernating as possible. Well, yeah, this fungus wakes it up. Now its heart rate's back up. Its temperature is back up. It's got to find some food. It's got to use the bathroom. Like it's got to do all these things. And it eats into that fat store significantly. And mm-hmm. it will end up going back into torpor. Um, but most of the time, what ends up happening is because it's eaten through all that storage, uh, they basically starve to death. Um, and so they found them dead, still like roosting in their hibernaculum. Um, it's it, they, in top. They have, they have, researchers have found colonies that have been anywhere from 90 to 100% dead. Oh um, and we're talking anywhere from like a couple dozen to hundreds or even thousands of bats that, uh, that white nose. Um, I think they stopped counting about, <laughs> they stopped counting bat fatalities at around 6 million as a result oh of white nose syndrome. And it is, not stopped from there. It's, it, right. it has just continued upwards and onwards. And so the silver lining to all this is that uh, some research is being done at, uh, at different universities where they're finding um, antibodies in bats that have had white nose, have survived, and that will then pass on to, you know, to their um, uh, future generations. Right. And also in Europe, which is where they think PD came from to begin with, um, the European bat populations where where this has already been, um, they have found similar antibodies in, in their systems as well. So so that is good news. That, like they are gonna get through this, but it's just gonna be, you know, is the at the species level, is this particular species gonna survive this? Um, and that's 
there's there's not a great answer for that. I mean, sure. hopefully, fingers crossed, but we haven't found a great way of preventing it. The mm-hmm. only way that we can really prevent it is by restricting access to hibernacula, um, making sure that like, it, which is primarily caves. So just making sure that these caves have restricted access or that when you are doing research, if you're a researcher, when, when that research is being conducted, that, that just an excessive amount of care is used um, when interacting with the bats and then uh, decontaminating all the gear afterwards. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. This, this I, just this weekend, um, I got to go and do some field work. I got to go miss netting with the Georgia bat working group. Shout out Georgia bat working group. Love you guys. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Um, every site that we went to for those three nights after, after each time, um, all the nets were decontaminated. All of the poles that the nets were on were decontaminated. All of us brought a second pair of clothing and stripped down to our skivvies and then changed into those clothes. So, and then put all of our clothes in bags so that when we got back into the vehicle, um, if there happened to be any of these fungal spores on anything that we touched or, or worked with, uh, that it wouldn't be transferred to some future bat population that we were going to be netting. So, and, th- and we weren't even in areas that were positive for, for PD, for white nose syndrome, but you just can't be careful enough. Yeah. You, you just yeah. don't know that, that it's not going to happen. And so, um, so that, so white nose syndrome is, is one giant issue. That's a pandemic in and of itself among bat populations. And then I use the word pandemic spe- specifically because <laughs> there's evidence that COVID can actually backspill into bat populations. Mm. Um, there's some precedent oh. for that. So, uh, so, KN95 masks, gloves. I mean, a, a lot of the regulations that, that are um, appropriate for a hospital are also appropriate for working with bats. And so, yeah, um, that is a potential as well. Elsewhere in the world um, where they're not worried about white nose syndrome necessarily, there's human predation. There, there are places in the world where they're hunted for mm-hmm. uh, as bushmeat or, um, you know, they're, they're bought and sold for, you know, other various culturally important purposes and um so that's that's another one you know in those cases it's hard it's hard to say if something is like deeply and culturally ingrained there's um there's some sensitivity that has to be had there because it's like we can't just like march in it's very colonizery right to like march in and say you shouldn't be doing this it's like yo we've been here for like like my great, 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 great grandmother lived right there. Like who, who are you to tell me that I can't do this? And you know what I mean? So yeah. there's, there's some, some cultural sensitivities to be had there, but, um, but that is another part, um, of what they face. So yeah, bats just kind of have a bad. And then, um, just your general misinformation and fear, um, mm-hmm. people will close off. Like there's stories of people who have, uh, sealed off entire caves and then like torched them, like just literally just, just immolated the like entire colonies of bats. And so, yeah, the, the misinformation piece is really, really detrimental because humans, um, tend to destroy what they fear. And, uh, Hmm. and that's happened to be something that most humans are afraid of for one reason or another. So, Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Is it safe to say then, Nate, so I, I think of, for example, you know, in, in, in my research, one of the things that, that gets talked about, about a lot in the conservation field is like symptoms of endangerment or, or things that are 
sort of associated with it, right? Certain characteristics that like, if a species has that, you're like, mm, that's probably endangered. And at least from what I'm hearing from you, you know, where a, a single person from a village could decide they don't like having bats nearby, find the cave, torch it, and every bat in that valley or whatever is gone. Is this the kind of thing where part of their natural history as being organisms that like to congregate and live in very specific locations, is that part of what makes them very vulnerable, that they can be targeted very easily and then just boom, that's it, you, you took care of everybody locally? I think it's very possible. Um, I, it's they, for instance, it went, so some context, bats are super long lived for animals of relative size, right? So okay. like, whereas maybe they're rodent sized, right? They're not rodents, yeah. rodents are different okay. order, but they are very tiny compared, like American bats will say are very tiny, um, but compared to a rodent, say like a mouse or a, a shrew or something that will live six years, five, six years, a bat can live in the wild for 15 to 20 to 25 years. Oh, um, wow. and, and in fact, the, the oldest bat on record wild that we know of was, I think, 41 years old. And that was in the UK. So these things can Jeez. live a long time. And they only have, on average, about one pup per year. Um, oh, there, there are some species that have twins or even triplets or quadruplets. Very rare, not normal. The vast majority mm -hmm. have one. And so they're slow to reproduce. They're not having yeah. six, seven every few months um, like other small uh, animals, other small mammals. Um, so, so yeah, they, they like to go, they tend to like to go to places that they know are temperature controlled, stable, and they go there year after year, after year, after year, after year. Well, guess what? People pick up on that. And so yeah. they catch wind of it and they don't like them. They can go and, and really mess with them. And, and it, it's devastating because again, they can only have one per year. It, it's it's not like it's gonna it's gonna come back here pretty quick. So, um, and we might not know the answer to this question on a scientific level, but do we know how bats select where they roost? Like, is it is it like an elephant where like there's a matriarch who like knows the location of these things? And um, so, like, if you were to wipe out a colony, what is what would recolonization even necessarily look like? Do they even? <laughs> No, without someone to you know someone in the colony who knows what's up to lead them back around yeah i think um so i i vaguely remember reading a, a paper on this so there there is there is knowledge that's passed that's like passed mm -hmm. down so so there is evidence that certain bat species um if like only one bat survived, let's say, or I guess two, cause you'd need a breeding pair, right? So you, you get a breeding pair. There's evidence that if the rest of the colony was wiped out, that it would actually be able to make its way back to a particular hibernaculum. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, um, that they're, I mean, they're, they're looking for some of the things that, uh, like I mentioned a second ago, they're looking for temperature. They're looking, they're looking for stability, um, in, in that spot, um, low amount of predators, hopefully, uh, right. temperature control, hopefully good air, con you know, good airflow, um, mm -hmm. availability of, uh, resources 
you know, before and after hibernation, if they're a hibernating species. So yeah, so there, there are certain things that they are able just evolutionarily adaptations that allow them to find spots like that. Yeah. But then there is also like a, like a, uh, a social dynamic where they are, I don't know if it's the elder telling stories or what exactly, how exactly it's passed down, but they, but they do share that knowledge with one another and can find like map their way back to certain places that have been important to their colony, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I can't point to any paper in particular. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I remember reading it, but, um, but that's been a while. So I'll ha- yeah. I'd have to, I'd have to do some digging on that one. That's okay. If you do find it, we'll uh, we'll include it in the show notes. And I think that kind of pivots us nicely because obviously, bat boxes they exist, they work. So there is some amount of bats opportunistically finding new things. So it's not that they will. It's not that their migration patterns are so hardwired that they'll only go back to a hibernacula, a single hibernacula. They need they need some good options, but they're somewhat flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we talk a little bit, you know, one of the things that we like doing in this podcast is helping people understand how they can better be canine conservationists and whether that means being better dog handlers, dog owners, or better conservationists, I don't care. So let's talk a little bit about bat boxes and some other ways that the, the folks at home can uh, maybe support their local bat colonies. Yeah, so uh, bat boxes are, are are super prevalent right now, and there there's some great people, some great companies that are making some really nice, well designed boxes. Um, this is sort of sort of like what we were saying earlier, where like not I don't think not enough research has been done, like for long enough to say definitively um, whether bat boxes are, are a net positive or not. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, they're, this is not going to win me any popularity points because there are <laughs> some people who are like really, really, really into bat boxes and like they should be the way that we answer these questions is not by making less of them. It's by like making and installing more of them. Right. We just have to be careful, like and track the data. We, we don't want it to be exactly. for nothing. Right. So right. with right. all that being said, I think that, um, when it comes to bat boxes, there there are some unanswered important questions, um, such as not only the the temperature and like the that like the environmental realities of it, but then stuff like when the bats aren't using it, um, or even when the bats are using it, is it hosting pathogens that mm-hmm. we are unaware of? Nobody knows. Like, no, that question hasn't been answered yet. Maybe, probably, because yeah. where where humans and animals go, pathogens are there. So it's like, uh, are they? Is it actually creating a good environment for them? Um, the it, what side of a house or of an area should it be installed on? What color should it be? Um, there, there's a whole bunch of questions that uh, we have some good short-term data on, but mm-hmm. not a lot of great long-term data on. And mm-hmm. so I think. Um, when when it comes to bat boxes, there's a couple good resources. Bat Conservation International has a really good uh, resource page on on bat boxes, how to build them, where to install them, some best practices that they've learned over the years. Um, and there, yeah, there's some good there's some good research being done right now on some of the some of the long term effects. The question is ultimately, is this bat box going to become an ecological trap? Is it, mm-hmm. is it going to be, is it going to become something that is like a good band aid, but not like, 
sure, I could live in a cardboard box for a couple weeks, but like <laughs> ultimately that's not going to be great for my health. <laughs> ultimately, right, yeah, right. ultimately, like I, I'm going to start waning uh, as an individual and end up with some problems. And, and yeah. is that is the bat box sort of the equivalent of that? Um, mm-hmm. Is it great for a short term? thing because it needs to be flexible because of other environmental issues and so the, the bat box is great as like a airbnb um but, <laughs> but maybe not like a not not a long-term uh, solution um which there is actually a great bat box company called bat bnb um oh, so man. shout out bat bnb oh my god <laughs> I love that. Um, love that. yeah so um or is it long term better to just like plant some trees in the area yeah. And because the tree is going to provide not only food while, while it's younger, right. But then when it becomes old growth, which obviously takes like a long time, but, but Mm -hmm. when it gets older and they start to die and hollow out, now it's, now it's a big roosting environment for bats Mm -hmm. as well. So long-term that might actually be a better solution than the bat box. Um, so yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, trees have all sorts of other other benefits as well. You know, if you're if you've only got so much space or so much money, and you own the property you're on, um, I suppose you're probably not supposed to plant trees on your rental. Uh, but uh, <laughs> a little bit of guerrilla forestry out here. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, like trees, like they raise property value. They provide all sorts of habitat for, like, they're not just going to help the bats. So that makes sense. What about like, um, like pesticide application, like spraying my garden? Is there anything that like I could do or not do that maybe, and especially again, if we're, we're talking to maybe renters or people who might not have the opportunity to full on change the property that they're on, um, I don't know what yeah, they can do. I really haven't thought about or looked into pesticides at all, so yeah. I can't really speak to that particular question. I mean, intuitively, I would say the less pesticides, the better, generally, probably. right? Um, so that's that's probably a good thing to to use sparingly um, or or only as needed. Some other other good things. Um, our gardens, uh, gardens are great because they attract pollinators and and other bugs and bats eat those things. So that's, that's a good way to support the local bat population. Um, this is a very general statement, but because it, it's true, I think equally in almost every possible direction, but like not littering is a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. making sure that we're not contaminating local water sources. Clean water is super important. Um, the almost a surefire way to attract bats to any particular area is trees and water. If you've got clean water and and trees for them to be in, like it's almost a guarantee that, that you can have bats nearby. So um, anything you can do to preserve the, the health of the water in your area and of the local foliage, building a garden, um, a lot of cool research in the last number of years on artificial lighting and it's detriment to, uh, to birds and, and bats, um, especially migratory species, um, bats, uh, are, are pretty harmed by your, your average, like blue light or like LEDs or fluorescent lighting. So, um, keeping that to a minimum can be really, really helpful. And that's just as easy as just like turning the lights off, you know what I mean? Or like not having something in your yard that, that, 
that is artificial as far as lights go. Um, obviously, you can't control. I'm just sitting here looking at my streetlight outside, and it's like, which I, I live on a cul-de-sac, and this streetlight right here is literally the only one on the cul-de-sac, and it happens to be on our property, and we do rent, and guess who pays for that streetlight? This guy. Really? Um, and so, so I've asked myself if, um, if there's any possibility of, like, having it off like can i because i know for a fact i've got bats that live in these trees behind my neighbor's yard across the street mm-hmm. and um and so you think like if you've ever looked at a street light at, at night it's like look at all those you can look at all those bugs that are flying around it well actually they're they're only certain bugs can see at those wavelengths. And so it, it's actually pretty not diverse. There, there's only mm. a few species of bugs that are flying around and it's not necessarily going to be all the, the, the diversity that a bat is going to want or need to eat. Um, oh, no. So it's so like it's McDonald's not, where it's like, it's easy, it's convenient, it's there, but it's not, <laughs> not it's, really it's, the thing you should be eating every day. It's going to keep you alive, but it's not going to be like good fuel, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not going to, it's, it's like, yeah, I can exist on this for a minute, but not without getting the McGurgles. You know what I mean? Um, this is another ecological trap then, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Our listeners might be familiar with that term, but yeah. right, any, any, any situation where you're attracting wild animals to something that seems great to them, because that's what their instincts are designed to seek out. But then their actual lifetimes it's not it's not a great benefit to them yeah and mcdonald's is a great example it is a human (laughs) ecological trap that is that is precisely the term for it isn't it so so yeah um being able to to shut off that artificial light is helpful in a number of ways and kind of like back to the tree thing that Mm. you know what like a single uh like a single oak or a single pine i think can have like three to 400 different species of bugs that, that live on it. And that is the kind of variety that, that bats typically will, will eat. Um, and so only having like maybe a couple dozen at the artificial light is again, just not great. So, um, so yeah, those, those are some really easy, like low hanging, like even, even renters can do, which I am one can do this kind of a thing. Um, and then, I wonder if you could work with, if you really wanted to get involved working with like city government or talking to anyone about switching out different types of light bulbs or doing anything like that, you know, and really looking at some of this more systemic level change, maybe with your, your municipality. Um, yeah. Oh gosh. I had another question. Well, I'll, I'll speak to that for a sec while, mm-hmm. while you think um, the yeah, the, the, that like municipal level or even state level policy stuff, um, mm-hmm. I'm discovering because again, like I've been in the bat world officially for only like less than two years at this point. And, um, and so I'm learning a lot of these systemic things, but, um, but, but lobbying and like getting involved on like certain policy changes can really, really affect the, the conservation status of certain animals in your area. Right. Um, and so, especially if you're in, in the United States, like find your local bat working group, if there is one, um, and, and see what you can do to get involved, sign up for their newsletter, uh, keep your eyes peeled for anything that they send out, um, talk to your state bat biologists, like look them up and, uh, and see who they are and, offer just like offer to get involved at mm-hmm. some level whatever that means whatever that might look like i don't know i don't know what it looks like for you where you're at but um another another really good thing too are bat walks 
Batwalks are just, they are an incredible opportunity for a couple of things. One is like taking people who have never seen or experienced a bat before. And all of a sudden they have like a positive interaction with them. Um, and, and going on a bat walk, particularly with a bat detector. So if you, so like bat detectors are kind of like the binoculars of the bat world. Um, (laughs) you you can't, binoculars don't do you much good when it's pitch black outside and, and you can't see it. Right. So what, what, how can we perceive the bats? So there's there's a number of good bat detectors out there. Wildlife Acoustics is it has one called the Echometer Touch, and you take this little red square um, and you, you plug it into your uh, either phone or your tablet. They've got an app that you download, and yeah, it pulls up a, a graph, a, a spectrogram, and as it's picking up on vocalizations of a bat around you, assuming there's one somewhere around you, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. back to the beginning of the conversation. There is. There are bats everywhere. Um, yes. uh, will, um, it'll pick it up and it will actually do a pretty decent job of IDing the bat for you and then pulling up pictures of that species. So if you've got a big brown bat or a horn bat or whatever's in your area flying around you, it will ID it and then give you a picture that you can click on and it'll open up something that'll give you more information on that particular species. So it's like, it's really interactive and it's really stinking cool because a lot of people like haven't even seen one. And so as soon when they, when they make that connection for the first time of like, Oh my gosh, this bat right here just flew right over my head right there. That is wild. It just, it hooks people into bats so yeah. quickly. So if you, well, so, I, I, now I'm like, Oh my gosh, do I need a bat life list? And like, I think a lot of people, because of the way yes, that yes. you see them at most, you're probably seeing them flying overhead at dusk you have no i had no idea until this summer how gorgeous hoary bats mm-hmm. and eastern red bats are mm-hmm. um you know so it just it, you, you're able to hear them and then you're able to actually see like oh my gosh they're not like flying mice that's not actually what they look like they're way cooler than that not and right. nothing against rodents i we love our we stand we stand a good mouse right but like yeah, yeah no i get you <laughs> yeah so and also just from like the, the, the bird watcher and nerd perspective, I, I did one bird walk once when I was over in the UK. And I, I, I imagine that, that this app you're describing does the same thing that it also not only shows you the, the sound waves themselves visually, but it also slows it down and plays it for you. So you're actually getting to hear in a sense what these things sound like. Yeah, so that, was, that blew me away hearing the different how different the different um, sounds these species make are. It's just absolutely tremendous yeah it uh it converts it converts the 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 vocalizations to a frequency that's perceptible to human ears Ah, um and so yeah you can actually hear it's like most i won't say most a lot of species have this like really gorgeous sort of like downward sweeping um it's almost kind of dolphin like like it's kind of cool like an ocean it's like alien and so it, it but it's happening it's that but like in rapid succession yeah, and yeah, yeah. um and i mean actually the, just the study on bat vocalizations in general is also really fascinating because there it's broken up into like social calls and orientation calls and 
feeding, like hunting calls. Like there's all, all kinds of different, like almost like a syntax to, to the way that they use their vocalizations. But that's, that's a different discussion. But yeah, so you can visualize it. You can see it happening. It converts it into something that you can hear and then it'll ID it for you. So you can actually see the bat. It's just like, right. it is as close to, to like what a birder would experience as you could possibly yeah, yeah, get. Exactly. And especially for people who are um, nocturnally inclined, we'll say um, <laughs> it's a great activity. Uh, it, it's yeah. just, it's really cool to do. And I, I feel like more, more people um, back to the renters. Hey, you renter, this is something you can do. Um, and I think this is the education piece that is maybe even more important than like maybe anything else we've talked about because it's like the the again the number one predator of bats is actually humans for for one reason or another as bad as white nose syndrome is as bad as the wind farms it's like we are the ones that are encroaching on nature and and removing uh their natural habitat and sometimes frankly killing them because of misinformation and fear so it's like being able to do bat walks and to 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 do like that community outreach piece is, is really really cool it's, and it's extremely important so and, and it sounds like something that again you were you know you were bringing that into the or comparing that to the bird community right and birding with binoculars is just one of those things that is super fun super engaging and now there's this tr- like huge just exploding culture on it with so many people involved all the time and certainly you know it's been around for a long time but more recently you know that's getting bigger and bigger as we have apps and things like that so thinking then yeah like ebird right yeah so the 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 last question i kind of had from that point then was if you look at the birding community when you when we suddenly have the resources that birding has become super accessible to lots of people the way that that Batting clearly is becoming now for those of us who aren't morning people, which is I think a lot of people. So could be a much better activity. Are there any efforts going on similar to eBird? Like, can people who want to just buy one of those things and then go out and and start going on bat walks and detecting what bats are in their neighborhood? Can they do anything with with those data to bring them to scientists? Are there related citizen science initiatives? Not to my knowledge. Um, I think I think we're still. I think the the batting community um, mm-hmm. is still pretty young, um, yeah. fledgling, if you right. will. Uh, and so, um, <laughs> so yeah, there's not not a lot uh, in uh, in the way of resources for for a similar thing. I I hope that that becomes a thing because yeah, like be eBird is amazing, and and the fact that mm-hmm. any or like iNaturalist is like another sort of right. related thing, right? So like right. iNaturalist eBird was a great citizen science uh, opportunities, and I I hope that eBat becomes a thing. Yes. Um, yeah. but that requires a community to provide the information. And right now, um, it, it's just, it's just not there yet. And I, right. I think it could be. And I think things like bat detectors are going to open up. It's going to become yeah. a gateway for people to get involved with bats so that we can get to that same level with birding. Um, the, but it's just, it's just not there. The UK has a, has a, a brilliant batting community. That's what um, it seemed like. Yeah. yeah. They, they are incredible when it comes to, um, the, the number of rehabilitators and carers that are trained to take care of grounded, sick or otherwise ill bats is 
uh, it blows my mind. It is unbelievable. I was talking to, to a friend from the UK and she was telling me, I asked her, I was like, what's the, where's the nearest like bat rehabber to you? And she was like, yeah, like two or three miles down the road. And I was like, okay, <laughs> see, I don't think there's a bat rehabber in the entire state of Georgia. Like I, that I, that I'm aware of, they, they could be out right. there if you're there, like, please contact me. I would love to meet you, but, um, but I just don't know that they're there. And, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the, the bat community in the UK is brilliant in New Zealand is brilliant in other parts of the world. But, uh, but here in the U S we're, we're kind of lagging behind. We also have a larger geographical, uh, space to cover. So it's like, right. there's some logistic issues that could make something like an e-bat, uh, initiative a little more difficult, but it's, again, mm -hmm. it comes back to the education piece and then getting these bat detectors and people's hands so that we can have a large enough data set to upload into something like eBAT because then we can start tracking population data and migration data and all these other really important things. Yeah, that would be huge. It'd be so wow, huge. Okay. Good. Well, you heard it here right, first. So, yeah, Nate, why don't, we, um, why don't we tell the good people of the internet where they can find you, where they can get involved, um, anything that we didn't mention that you wanted to touch on, and then we'll, we'll let everyone go. Yeah, um, I. If you've made it this far in the episode, you're a great person. Uh, thanks for listening to me ramble about bats. If you like the rambling and would like to hear more of it, um, I'm full of it. So find me at Give Bats a Break on Twitter. I'm at Give Bats a Break on Instagram. Uh, GiveBatsABreak.com. Uh, there's there's some merch available. Uh, you can't see it. I'm wearing a I'm wearing a Give Bats a Break sweater right now. Um, I've got hoodies and shirts and stuff. Uh, so if if you're feeling spendy, then uh, go ahead and, and drop a couple bucks. It helps me. I would love to be able to do what I'm doing with bats full time. That's kind of my goal. Uh, mm -hmm. Is to to make this truly the fulfillment of what I wanted to do as a kid. Um, I would love to be fully engaged in the bat science community. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I appreciate any support there. Um, I've got a link tree that's got all the different, um, all the different links. So, uh, I can give that to you and you can pop that in, in the show notes. And, uh, I think that about covers it. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about bats. I think they're, I think they're great. And, uh, I think you're great too. So, Appreciate yeah, yeah, you. No, thank you so much. And thanks so much for taking time out of your day and recording this. I hope everyone kind of understands a little bit more of why the, the work that we've done with the bats is important, how they can get involved. Um, Charles, before we go, do you want to remind people where they can find you as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I can uh, be found on, on Twitter at Gulo Thoughts, that's G-U-L-O, and the word thoughts. I'm not going to spell it this time. And then on uh, Instagram at Gulo Shots. Uh, Nate, Real pleasure meeting with you and and chatting with you about bats. Yeah, Definitely you too, a, man. And we're both in Georgia, me. so uh, yeah. we need to, we need to meet up at some point. And uh, I know. Let's start the e batting movement. Come man. on, I'm gonna now. go. Look, I'm gonna go be shopping for some for some apps and and uh, and bat detectors because I've been meaning to do it for a while. Ever since I did one in the UK, I was like, I need to do this back home. So uh, yeah, we'll be in yeah, touch. Yeah, then. Cool. Might, uh, I'll drop in some links in the show notes if people need to need some ideas for Christmas or you know <laughs> as things are coming up. Like, let's get some bat detectors. Seriously, yeah, um, I'm buying my mom a bat right. house well, for thanks, sure. Nate, there and, you uh, go. Yeah, thanks, Charles, for coming on as well. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill sets. As we suggested in this episode, our week's call to action is going to be to build and install a bat box. If that's appropriate for you, you can check out better ways to ensure that you're doing that right at Bat Conservation International. Um, You can also consider any of the other calls to action, other ways that we suggested for helping bats as well, such as limiting pesticide application, getting involved in your local municipality or state bat biologist, and seeing other ways that you can get involved locally. As always, you can find show notes wherein we include all of those useful links, donate to Canine Conservationists, buy merch, and join our Patreon Learning Club over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time!